The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. The Buddha awoke. Simple enough beginning. All that we have here and all that is in every Buddhist place, center, temple, practitioner comes from the Buddha's awakening. Several thousand years have passed. And from that awakening, his teachings have spread through many countries and cultures, adjusting to the ever-changing circumstances that time and culture brings, offering different perspectives and practices, different emphases. And these have developed and changed and continue onward. And in our own monastery and temple, the reflections of these change continue. Yet it all rests on the source, the Buddha's awakening. I think about this often. That he faced the same challenges that we face. The same dissatisfactions and disharmonies in life the same pains. Oh, on the surface, it may seem different because cultures change and technology and things change. But at its heart, it's the same. And I identify with that. In a way, I identify with Gautama before his realization because that inspired me, perhaps it inspired many of you, his journey, his insistence on finding a way to address the profound disharmony that he saw within himself and others. His insistence on not settling, and not settling for just feeling peaceful, recognizing that that too can be a form of suffering. And even if he's got his, what about yours? So I think about this often. I think about how a particular person, his decisions, his practice, his persistence, his determination, 
his great faith in something he could not know until it was his own experience. He didn't have available to him Buddhas to teach him, at least overtly. And he awoke to the fundamental nature of reality. Understanding and speaking to the many ways that we cause disharmony and can see deeply into reality in such a way that while life and death still go on, the pain and the difficulty on top of that for you and I does not have to go on. There are options. He was determined to be free in this world with all that it brings, not just part, with all that it brings. And he lived as we do in a world that brought a lot. Each of us has some understanding of these teachings within our own idealization, our own intent, our own understanding of the Buddha's teachings. And we respond to them in our own individual way. Which makes practicing with a Sangha so interesting, so wonderful, so head-scratching sometimes. Because I have my view and you have yours. How did you get there? As you think of me, how did I get there? It's really interesting. There are many schools of Buddhism. And even within specific schools. So to put that another way, there are many schools of the Buddha's teaching. And even within specific schools, there are many different takes on what awakening is and whether it's something that we should work towards, strive for, not strive for, acknowledge, not acknowledge. How we understand that for ourselves and practice it with a clear intent is, from my perspective, a crucial perspective for each of us to individually work with. I think the main point I took away from the Buddha's journey, from his realization, and from his teaching, is that I'm responsible for my own suffering 
and for freedom from my own suffering. You can put that in a more weighted way. I'm responsible for my own awakening. Nobody else's. It's up to me. Uh, clearly, none of us, no, not a single one of us can do it alone. Even if we have some insight, what happens after that? Sometimes people say, well, the Buddha didn't have a teacher. Well, he had teachers, of course. But he walked away from them because they, they didn't offer him something that he recognized would put an end to suffering. But he had teachers. His Sangha was a teacher. His teacher. The Dharma was his teacher. So, I rest in that responsibility, which is sometimes joyful and sometimes very painful, facing that responsibility. Within the Buddha's teaching, it's clear he used skillful means, which we're actually studying the Sangha. He worked with many different people from many different cultures and walks of life with different aspirations. And he taught according to the circumstances of the time and place and the folks he was teaching the Dharma to. Sometimes his emphasis was on living a moral life. Sometimes his emphasis was on liturgy. Sometimes on monastic practice. Sometimes on lay practice. Sometimes he emphasized faith, faith in yourself to awaken. Sometimes he placed an emphasis on direct realization. And sometimes on the cultivation of compassion. And we can ask of these separate things, one thing, different petals from the same flower. And it goes on from there. As a baseline, in practice, we're asked to trust those teachings deeply. And we need to trust them deeply because we come face to face in our zazen with what do we come face to face with? Ourself. And we have believed ourself and lived out of ourself for our whole lifetime. And the Buddha noted the problem of suffering and the second noble truth, right? What did he say? Umwa. As Miss Piggy said, for those of you who are of a certain age. Our problem is our separate sense of self. Not as a person. Not as a personality but as 
a life divided into me and you, you being everything else, and living out of that as a fundamental fixed truth. So I trust his teachings, his life, as I understand them. And that's an emphasis, as I understand them. And I trust those who reflected those teachings out of their own realized practice, my teachers, my fellow students. And yet I and you can only do so in the context of our life, our karma, simply because that's what we have to work with. That's our life. I deeply respect this, that each of us lives, has lived in a particular way, made particular decisions, the results of which were often unanticipated. And so each of us is invited to work with the direct circumstances of our life to practice in a way that makes sense to us within the Buddha's teaching. Clearly, this is not a fixed thing. Our life changes. It's a very dynamic process. And it reflects not only the Sangha and the teachers we study with, but our own individual and collective karma, our personality, our upbringing, the upbringing of our parents, the society we're in, and the very personal life choices and commitments we make. So more concretely, when I first began to study I was living in Denver, and I met Roshi Kepler. I was aware of only a couple of two or three Zen teachers in the country. So my choices were limited. I didn't think that way. It's only looking back that I look at it that way. When I met Roshi Kepler, I considered it miraculous. There he was a realized person that I was looking for to teach me. Standing right in front of me, all five foot, five of him. Unassuming, the least charismatic person I've ever met in my life. (laughs) And yet, in his own way, utterly confident. Doing the best out of the circumstances of his life. So it's very personal how we practice. It's very personal how we understand our responsibility. 
in this time and place, in this kalpa, there's only one Buddha, capital B, Shakyamuni Buddha. I say he realized himself, but he realized Anuttara Samyaksambodhi, complete enlightenment. Probably you and I are not the Buddha of this kalpa. Probably not. I don't want to rule it out, but based on available evidence, probably not. But we all have our fundamental Buddha nature, every single one of us. And we all have, every single one of us, the capacity to realize that in whatever measure we can in our lifetime. And thereby receive the Buddha's awakening in our own life as our own awakening. This is the fundamental realization of the Buddha. I and all beings, I mean you, me, have at once awoken. It's inherent. You can't help it. It's a package deal. But it's our job. And from my perspective, my responsibility to realize that for myself. When we go back to the Buddha's teaching after his awakening, there were three sutras. Sutras that he offered that I would consider the core of his teaching. That was Dharma. And for the next. 45 or so years, he used those teachings as the basis of what he taught. The first teaching was the Dharmakaka Sutra. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and I'm sorry if I'm not. Which is basically the Four Noble Truths. And I suspect everyone in this room has encountered that, and to one extent or another studied it although it's truly a lifetime of study. It's inexhaustible. And it imbues all subsequent teachings. The second one was the Anagalakana Sutra. This is what he said in that sutra. I'm going to change the words slightly to make it a little more accessible. A body and mind is not self. Where where our body and mind are true self, then this body and mind would not lead to affliction. And one could say of this body and mind, let my body and mind be thus, and let my body and mind be not thus. And since body and mind is not self, it leads to affliction. And none can say of the body and mind, let my body and mind be thus, let my body and mind mean not thus. Now, just to follow that a little bit, 
Our body and mind is not like a car. We just can't steer it. And we want to go that way, it goes that way. We want to go that way, it goes that way. I think if you look closely at your experience, you realize you're not in control. You're going to get old. You're going to get sick. And you're going to die. Kind of basic. You're not in control. You can't stop that process. If you live long enough, you can't stop that process. It's not going to happen. It's happening. The Buddha was speaking to the suffering we add to living our life. Our body and mind, and as it turns out, all things don't seem to respond to our desires to get what we want and to avoid what we don't want. Oh, we have some measure of influence. Yet we seem to operate with this body and mind as if it's a set thing, as if it's permanent. It's pretty controllable. And thus, myself responding to my wishes likes and dislikes, I can manipulate. How's that working out for you? It can be subtle, such as even when we get what we want, how is that? What, what's the karma of getting what we want? I mean, you can study that. What's the karma of having a lot of money? Often I've observed it's the desire to have more money. What's the karma of not getting what we want? Kind of certain mind states which create more suffering. What's the karma of being oblivious? what I call, this isn't a loaded word, it just, as it is, kind of a stupid life, just living as if nothing really has any weight to it, no karma to it. I can do whatever I want, and it's mine. T.S. on you, if you know that old Brooklyn term. So the Buddha was saying, feelings is not the self. Perception is not the self. Determination is not the self. Consciousness is not the self. Nor do any of the 10,000 things of this universe have a self that is permanent, controllable, and everlasting. That seems to cover it pretty well. So that sutra is about no self. It's about the impermanence of all things. The third sutra is about this world and relationship as a being living in the world and how that relationship, this is the key point, 
rests on how we understand our mind, how we understand our feelings, our consciousness, our being. It's about how we understand our relationships in the most intimate, personal manner, and how that understanding affects the world and ourself. Just look at the world. The suffering of the world is due to how you and I and others understand our mind and what comes out of that. So I'm going to read that sutra. It's a little long, but I think it's okay. It's called The Fire Sermon. And I read it to myself every couple of years because I need to. The Buddha was once living in Gaia and there were a thousand monastics present. And he addressed them. Monastics, all is burning. And what is all that is burning? The eye is burning. Visible forms are burning. Visual consciousness is burning. Visual impression is burning. Also, whatever sensation, pleasant or unpleasant, painful, arising on account of the visual impression or seeing, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with griefs, with despair. The ear is burning. Sounds are burning. Auditory consciousness is burning. Auditory impression is burning. Also, whatever sensation, pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, arises on account of the auditory impression, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving, of wanting. The nose is burning. Odors are burning. Olfactory consciousness is burning. Olfactory impression is burning. Also, whatever sensations, pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, arising on account of the olfactory impression, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving. The tongue is burning. Flavors are burning. Taste consciousness is burning. Taste impression is burning. Also, whatever sensation, pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, arising on account of the taste impressions, that also is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving. The body is burning. Tangible things are burning. Tactile consciousness is burning. Tactile impression is burning. Also, whatever sensation, pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, 
arising on account of the tactile sensation. That too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving. The mind is burning. Mental objects are burning. Mental consciousness is burning. Mental impressions is burning. Also, whatever arises, whatever sensation arises, pleasant or painful, neither painful nor pleasant, arises on account of the mental impressions. Arising on account of the mental impressions, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with grief, and with despair. A a learned and noble disciple, that's us, who sees things thus, becomes dispassionate with regard to the eye. Dispassionate, I want to add, means in this context to clearly observe how we distort reality to reflect our own self-involvement and self-centered perspective. Dispassionate to the things of the world means to clearly observe, be clear on, how we distort reality to reflect our self-involvement. A noble and learned disciple who sees things thus becomes dispassionate with regard to the eye, becomes dispassionate with regard to visible forms, becomes dispassionate with regard to visual consciousness, becomes dispassionate with regard to visual impression, and also whatever sensation, pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, arises on account of the visual impression. With regard to that, too, they become dispassionate. Again, it means to clearly observe how we distort reality. Thus, they become dispassionate with regard to the ear, with regard to sounds. They become dispassionate with regard to the nose, with regard to odors. They become dispassionate with regard to the tongue, with regard to flavors. They become dispassionate with regard to the body, with regard to tangible things. They become dispassionate with regard to the mind, with regard to mental consciousness. Become dispassionate with regard to mental impression, and also whatever sensation, pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, arises on account of mental impression. With regard to that, too, they become dispassionate. They become aware of their delusion. Being dispassionate, they become detached. Detached here means not attached. Through non-attachment, they are liberated. When liberated, there is knowledge that they are liberated. 
That's so important. When liberated, there is knowledge that they are liberated. When liberated, there is knowledge that they are liberated and they, and they know. What do they know? Birth is, is exhausted. The holy life has been lived. What has been done is done. There is no more left to be done on this account. The Buddha is describing a world of sorrow in which our mental and physical senses are all burning with desire. What does desire mean? What does that actually mean? It means whatever is occurring at this moment, we reject. That's desire. We want something else. And if by chance we should get that something else, what do you think happens? We want something else. That never ends. We are constantly interpreting all the sensations we encounter as pleasurable or painful or neither pleasure, pleasurable nor painful to avoid, destroy, or grasp or consume, or just be numb to. In other words, the suffering of the world is caused by our filtering through our lens of endless desires and thirst, subtle or overt, of all of our sense impressions, everything that we're aware of, of all of our awareness. And this is not on the surface, maybe on the surface, but you have, to, you have to study yourself. You have to look closely, and it is there. That's the point of practice. You're seeing the Dharma, phenomenal reality, when you look closely. That's the freedom of this practice, the freedom from desire, which doesn't mean we don't have wants, likes or dislikes, but to have that and not be attached, to have that and be free. I like chocolate ice cream, but I don't have to have it. It's fine. Sometimes. These fundamental teachings are at the core of what practice is in Zen. They're at the core of Zazen. What are we doing in Zazen? We're seeing the desires come up. And through different ways of practicing, they're passing through us. Either we're directly letting them go, we're just studying them and observing them, or we're using the intelligence of our non-conceptual mind to see into them.
we can speak of many, many different aspects of the Buddha's teaching and hold it up as something that's important and that we should attend to. There's always more to the Buddha Dharma. But as best as I can tell, all of it rests on these three sutras. This sutra, the fire sermon, does not stand alone. There's a context. The Four Noble Truths, Non-Self, Compassion, Bodhicitta, the Paramitas, and all of the many skillful means to help us address our suffering. Not only our suffering, but the suffering of all the so-called others in the world. Can we pause here and just feel what the Dharma is offering us? Just feel the reality that we are in without judgment, without moving away. Just feel it. Just feel yourself alive as this Dharma, as this wholeness, lacking nothing. Can we open our eyes and see the Dharma in every single bit of phenomenal reality? The Dharma is the teachings. It is phenomenal reality. It is inherently free of suffering. That's the connection. When we see without filters, that's the freedom. Doesn't mean there isn't pain or sorrow. Doesn't mean there isn't happiness or joy. It just is what it is. It's whole, it's you. With open eyes, we can receive and respond from this offering. And so we practice to do that. There are many practices, but they rest from a Zen perspective on Zazen. I'm actually seeing, I'm actually studying all those things in the fire sermon that he said at length. So that we can see for ourselves, so that we can be responsible for our own awakening. You know, the thought comes up over and over for me in my practice, and I certainly see it in others, that our aspiration sometimes is so small compared to what is being offered to us. You know, what's the most typical aspiration? I hurt and I don't want to hurt. I'm suffering and I don't want to suffer. Let me get rid of it. And the karma of getting rid of suffering in this way is more suffering. It just is. So these three sutras have a flashing red light before them. Start here in your study. And do not stop studying them.
I don't just mean in them the words. The words are one thing, and they have an importance. But how they apply to each of us individually, and thus collectively, to study them that way, to see how it actually functions in our life, in our mind, in our consciousness, in our sensations, in our awarenesses, in our pain. It's not hard to see. Once you turn, once the light goes on and you realize that I'm rejecting the reality of this, whatever this is, and I'm filtering this through myself, and it hurts. And so we can take a breath, we can sit, and realize it doesn't have to be that way. Or if it does have to be that way, then we can be that way fully. Sometimes that's how it is. She died. Sorrow. He's suffering. Pain. Not to run. But to to be that. I hurt. There's a fundamental truth in my hurting. Perhaps for you, the objects of the six senses do not seem to be on fire. Or, sometimes the word disgusting is used. On the contrary, a mind may take delight in them, pursue them, and cling to them constantly. I know nobody here has ever done that. But, just in case you do... So this is the original Buddha's teaching. From a later Mahayana perspective, we practice using and appreciating our sensations, our feelings, our consciousness, our attention centered in and arising from the perspectives of our bodhisattva vows. We keep saying them over and over. Have you noticed? We keep saying them. Every day. I wonder why. Have you wondered why? And so, thus, we cultivate the skill and means to help other beings. From the bottomless perspective that there are no other beings. And yet the relative relative perspective of honoring each other being just as they are. Both sides. If you get stuck on one side or the other side, there's going to be suffering. Both sides. That's the realized mind functioning. As you see both sides. The cultivation of the paramitas, to give one example of wisdom, pointing to our own practice, our own realization, to the no things of things, 
to non-duality. That's a baseline for all the paramitas, for all of the Buddha's teaching. It comes forth in the world of not doing evil, of practicing good for myself and for all of us, of you practicing good for yourself and all of us. We practice boundless patience and forbearance and tolerance and endurance and equanimity. The longer I practice, the more I relate to this paramount of patience. Because I note when I'm not patient, what's advancing? It seems obvious in retrospect. A cultivation of wisdom directs our efforts and energy in whatever we do to help, in giving what we can give, even when we feel we can't give. And the perfection of morality, and the cultivation of harmony with others. In the course of our zazen, we practice the cultivation of our heart, opening our heart. so that we can cease to contribute to the fire that consumes us in this world. Each of the paramitas is an enlightened quality of a heart. It's already there. It is the innate seed of the perfection, the wholeness of what is already within us. Unless we can change our perspective through gaining insight, we cannot be aware of the firestorm that is consuming us in this world. We cannot be helpful in that. So gradually we need to see the craving and attachment to the sense objects that we have You know the parable of the burning house in the Lotus Sutra, where the father manipulates his children, (laughs) distracts them from their toys, from their sense objects, to come out of the burning house. And he promises them some nice trinkets. But when they come out, something far more valuable is offered to them. The Dharma, in essence. The Buddha, representing the Father. Us in the burning house. When it comes down to it, we all have these trinkets. We all have these habits. We all look at things outside us to give us strength. And what ends up happening is that they weaken us. Ultimately, in the short term, we get satisfaction. I love my iPhone. I note how in the time since I've been out of the monastery, which has been a number of years, that as soon as I have a spare moment, I whip out my phone and start looking. I 
interesting. So use skillful means individually and collectively to dampen our own fire. We take refuge in the three jewels. The refuge calls to us inside a house consumed by fire. It calls to us and we can begin to hear the cries of the world. But we have to be careful. Zen practice is not a technique for putting out the fires of samsara. It's easy to think that. It would be nice if that was so. That's what I call my vernacular a fix. There's a problem, we fix it. What the practice does offer is a way of cultivating what Dogen called the blue lotus, which blossoms in the midst of the fire and at the time of flames. It's the blossoming of the compassion that's in your heart, arising from within the wisdom of our practice. To become the blue lotus, to blossom in the fire, is to realize our fundamental nature. And out of that, our capacity for the deep, fundamental kindness that arises in our heart. For the deep, fundamental equanimity and wisdom that blossoms in the fire. And the deep understanding in the very midst of suffering, of others' suffering and your suffering. This is the fundamental challenge of practice. We probably all start from our own self-centered need to address our pain. But something changes along the way as we realize addressing my pain doesn't happen without addressing others' pain. We have to bloom in the fire. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.